Welcome to Sex Savvy, where nothing is off limits. I'm Kimberly Resnick Anderson, your host and creator of Sex Savvy. I've been helping couples and individuals achieve optimal sexual health for more than 25 years. I am ready to share my unique insights and sex-positive approach with the world. We'll talk about hang-ups, kinks, fantasies, and function, what's hot, what's not, and most importantly, how to become sex-savvy. Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Sex Savvy. I'm your host, Kimberly Resnick-Anderson. The topic of today's episode is My Penis is a Battering Ram, One Man's Sexual Story. And I think this may be my favorite episode so far because it takes you on a journey through the lens of one of my clients as he describes his sexual story, his historic ambivalence about his sexuality and his masculinity, which he believes is inherently aggressive. Not his masculinity in particular, but masculinity at large, he believes is inherently aggressive and predatory. So I hope that you will be inspired and encouraged to think about and challenge your notions of masculinity and femininity as you listen to my client describe his struggles around sex and masculinity. He found himself in a sexless relationship for many years and sought my help initially to see if he could get back on the sexual horse, so to speak, with his live-in girlfriend. After hearing a number of my podcasts, he was inspired to share his story. He was feeling pretty authentic and empowered and asked if he could come on my podcast and uh, share his story. So I am thrilled to play this interview for you, and it'll give you a taste of what happens in uh, my sex therapy office. Let's get sex savvy. I'm very excited today to introduce my guest, who's actually a patient of mine. His name is Matthew. Matthew, welcome to Sex Savvy. Great to be here. I'm really excited to chat with you today. So shall we dive right in? Yeah, let's do it. You first came to me for guidance, what, probably a year and a half, maybe two years ago? Mm -hmm. And your presenting complaint or concern was a lack of sexual intimacy in the relationship you were in at that time. And I think it had been quite a few years since you had had any sexual contact and had sex. I'm not sure. I, I don't know if it was ever a few years, but yeah. I mean, at least since we'd had like a regular and functioning safer relationship. Yes. And so for those of you who may not know this that are listening, one of the things I specialize in or an area of focus that I enjoy working with are sexless relationships, sexless marriages. And I really enjoy helping couples get back on that sexual horse. And you've been a tut nut to crack, my friend. (laughs) (laughs) So we've gone through many different iterations of your relationship since then. So talk to me just about when you decided to go to therapy, what was on your mind, and what were you hoping to figure out when we first met? I first actually got connected to you by referral from the therapist I was seeing, who was also 
the therapist of the woman who I was in a relationship at the time. And we were both seeing her separately and sometimes together. At that point also was when this thing came up with talking about being touched inappropriately when I was a child by a camp counselor, which had been until then something that I'd never mentioned to anybody that I had even hidden from myself, basically been repressing until at that point when I told her about it and yeah, was working on that with her and with my girlfriend. And at that point she thought that I need to see someone who, yeah, specifically could work with my issues around sex, which are many. So <laughs> she, she sent me your way. Okay, well, I'm so glad she did. What are your many issues? I think before it's an insecurity with my sexuality, it's an insecurity with my masculinity. Before I even knew that I was like, how I was supposed to approach romance I had the feeling that I was insufficient as a as a boy, like insufficient as a man, as a boy. I felt very powerful as a child in a lot of ways, but in terms of, yeah, living up to some kind of masculinity, I felt inadequate. I think the earliest time I can remember, just knowing like I had a big brother who was a boy and I had a, a dad who was a boy and whatever, all the adult boys around me and what it meant to be a boy. And I felt like I wasn't enough of one because one thing being bad at sports, but my brother was even worse at sports. <laughs> yeah. And a feeling of general of like being sensitive, being soft, being non-competitive. I wasn't seeking to win, which was part of why I was bad at sports. I wasn't, maybe I could have been <laughs> better if I had cared enough to be. The whole thing, the whole idea of going out there and trying to win, of trying to prove something, prove our superiority, and feel good about that while we're making as many people feel bad. There was no mutual gain there going on. It was this thing where some of us were going to elevate ourselves and some of us were going to lower ourselves. And yeah, that wasn't fun. So by what age were you thinking this way? I was thinking of myself as insufficient just from a size perspective, just from like being a small guy. I think at five, that was on my radar very early, that my peers were bigger than me. So that led to the thing with the sports and, and just the idea of like being, like if I got in a fight with anyone that I would lose, that there was a dominance over me by the other males in the room. And do you still feel that way? When you're a kid, there's the threat of being beaten up is more real. It didn't happen to me. I actually got out of it by developing ways of making sure that larger people liked me and protected me. And you're quite the witty fellow, I must say, Matthew. You use humor and you're quite charming and that probably saved you from getting your ass kicked. Yes. And sometimes if someone was not nice to me, I'd come up with a mean name that would spread around. And so I think in some ways people were afraid of how I could cut them with words, even if I was smaller than them. And that bought me a little bit of power. You are a wordsmith. I mean, I was a class clown, for sure. That was my way of, of having power. You told me early on in our therapy work that when you were in, I believe it was fifth grade, a girl in your class handed you a note. Yeah. 
over the course of two years, I received a number of handwritten or hand-drawn, like constructed, like, you know, with construction paper and hearts <laughs> and stuff like that. Love um, notes. Yeah, love notes. Not just for Valentine's Day, but like various times just throughout the year. And so... From a specific girl. Yeah, yeah, from a specific girl who... I don't know if I wanted to be anyone's boyfriend at that point. Probably not. But not only did I not want to be her boyfriend, I didn't particularly even want to be her friend. She wasn't like one of the people who was like, oh, I like her. She's great. She's kind of like, oh, her. I hope she doesn't hear this. I don't know how she would. I feel bad. (laughs) Yeah, there you go. I still feel bad for rejecting her in fourth and fifth grade. But I, I hid these letters. I didn't mention them to anybody. None of my friends. I just... I didn't want anyone to know. I was embarrassed about the whole thing. I hid them and... Why were you embarrassed? Because I think that's a key theme in your story. You know what? I was embarrassed about the whole idea of being cute. It was disempowering for me. So that fed into your already hatched notions about you being not That just makes me weaker and Mm -hmm. less of a man or boy, I guess, even at that point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so cute wasn't like, wasn't really something that I could take pride in. And so the idea of her like having this thing for me, which also I just, I didn't understand it. I didn't, I didn't want it. I didn't want it at all. I just didn't, I didn't want her attention on me like that. You felt intruded upon. I did. Yeah. yeah. By fourth, fifth grade. Yeah. Someone's romantic interest in you felt burdensome. Yes. And I think that theme weaves throughout your life and sexual story into today, into your present. Yeah. So talk about the burden a little bit of someone else expecting you, someone feeling dependent on you, someone wanting something from you. There is some feeling for sure of maybe it has to do with feeling incapable of delivering the goods. The goods. Yeah. Whether that was for my mother, just like delivering on my mother's expectations. Yeah. And then allowing anybody else to have expectations of me. So it wasn't just erotic or sexual expectations. It was emotional expectations too. Yeah, I mean, it even happened with some friendships, with some, like, oh, this this guy kind of needs a lot of attention from me, and that's <laughs> not... The most high-functioning friendships I had were usually with people who were independent, and I could just, like, latch on when I felt like it and let go when I didn't feel like it, you know, and they'd keep inviting me out and enable a social life like that without expecting that every time they contact me or invite me out that I'm going to show up. And if I ever get the feeling that someone's going to like feel bad if I don't show up once, then it's like, okay, this friendship is over because that's what it is. I'm just going to disappoint you. I don't want to deal with your disappointment. So it felt and feels inevitable that you'll disappoint someone? If they expect consistency of me. And so how does that loop back to being in a sexless relationship? So this relationship was my first long-term relationship, only long-term relationship. And I'd just like to add that you'd never expected to be in a long-term relationship. 
correct? Yes. But I, I met someone very special and we hit it off and fell in love. And I found myself wanting to be with her all the time and she wouldn't be with me all the time. And so we moved in together and, well, we had a partnership uh, <laughs> that was not necessarily the most functioning partnership. We're doing great now. <laughs> I think we're we're doing very well as exes. I just went for a walk today and talked about like that a little bit. But yeah, the the idea of inevitable disappointment was always there for me. And did it morph into feeling like you would sexually disappoint her, or was it more a yes. deep primal worry about being yes. like intrinsically inadequate? Both that if I delivered sexually or even when I felt like I was delivering sexually, like writing a check that I couldn't cash. Like it was delivering sexually means, oh, I'm symbolizing with my penis that I'm going to be a stable man in some kind of gorilla sense. Like I'm someone you can breed with that I'm like presenting myself as like a functioning man of with breeding potential and that I'm not. <laughs> and so... Is that unfair? I think I always felt a little guilty about that when I felt like I was delivering sexually. And when I felt like I wasn't, then that itself was the disappointment. And that was proof that I couldn't be relied on. Like it was my job to, in this case, both my job to make sure that she orgasmed, which I doubt I ever did. I don't know what I was doing. <laughs> and, and she felt like we couldn't communicate about that. But to do that and to make sure that I orgasm as a signal of appreciation, as like validation for her. So there's this like need to like check these boxes. Yeah. And if I'm in my head, I'm, I'm going to lose my erection. I'm going to not be attentive to my partner. And did those things happen? Yeah. And the more I was in my head, the more that happened. The more I perceived the potential of failure, the more I was kind of stuck in it. Whatever failure means, the more I was stuck in the fear. And so you said out loud one time in front of your girlfriend in my office that you were terrified of sex. Not only sex in the act itself, but my entire like sexual being became something that I was afraid for her to even see because I felt maybe anger from her about what I was not providing, about what I was holding back. So it did end up feeling withholding to her. Yeah. Like you were not offering something that she wanted. Yeah. I think with you, if you want to do it, it's fine, but you don't want to have to meet expectations. I want to be an unexpected hero. An unexpected hero. Yes, I love that. 
you helped an old lady on the road a couple months ago. Yeah, I like coming out of nowhere and helping someone and then disappearing. Because <laughs> they're to never going to expect anything else of me. <laughs> so what is the worry? Is the expectation fear that you will, like you said, be unable to deliver? And the fear of being trapped in an obligation. Feeling resentful about the expectations. Yeah. And so the more your girlfriend expected and wanted sex from you and with you, the harder it was for you to offer that. Yes. And it just got into like a vicious cycle. And there we were a couple years in. At one point recently in a therapy session, you've said that for you, sex equals an inherently aggressive predatory behavior. And I think there are a cohort of men out there who agree with you and and share that notion. Can you explain where that comes from and why you believe that sex is an inherently aggressive predatory behavior? I don't know if I would say that I believe it. Yeah, it resembles that to me in insertion, just like when we're just hooking up the audio equipment and just plugging in the male into the female. (laughs) And it's just, it's very clear, like one of those plugs is the aggressor and the other and the other plug is being impaled. So I think kind of <laughs> inherently for me that there is okay, so I have this soft organ. It won't do anything. It won't work while it's soft. I need to like make it hard and pointy and then like thrust with it. Like that's yeah, it's inherently aggressive. I understand better than I ever have that how There are women, heterosexual women, who approach sex aggressively, and that's not contrary to which way the plug is working, but it still feels different. (laughs) It still feels like the act of, of wrapping something is not an aggressive act the way the act of inserting something is an aggressive act. You also said that you have a primal fear of your masculinity that you're both revolted by your masculinity and saddened by your lack of masculinity. Can you explain that? Everything I can see in the world about like toxic masculinity, I can recognize parts of that in myself. So at the same time, I look at gross men in the world and think, oh, well, I'm not like that. But in some ways, I know that I am. In what ways do you know that you are? Is it because you're sexually responsive to women? I mean, I've objectified women. I, you know, I'm probably not that bad compared to, <laughs> compared to other guys. Trust uh, me, you're not that bad. <laughs> yeah. I'm aware of having thought patterns that are the same as the thought patterns of guys who do bad things because of those thought patterns. So even though if I'm not out doing something bad... Uh, Yeah, I'm objectifying women. I mean, I started doing that when I was a kid. Explain how you feel both powerful and powerless. Is that the same thing? Well, it's interesting because both the power that I'm revolted by, uh, that I'm telling you I see as like akin to the worst men, I also see those men as more masculine than me. In some ways, so yeah, so it's kind of weird to feel 
in inadequacy versus the men who revolt me, but that's there because I still feel, even if I have a value system that says they're bad, I live in a world with a value system that says they're good. That says power is good, says aggression is good. And that says that if I don't have those things, then I'm inadequate. So you are no longer in that relationship. You no longer live with that woman. And you are exploring dating again. Tepidly. Tepidly. Yeah. And you're not particularly motivated by or driven by getting laid. Yeah. Is it true that that's not even appealing to you at this point? I think being seduced is appealing to me. Like (laughs) putting the aggression on some invented woman, maybe, by thinking about that. But yeah. Then you don't have to take responsibility for being aggressive. Then I'm not the creep. Yeah, you're not the creep. Yeah. I want to be creeped on. Yeah, but your girlfriend was open and initiating and pursuing you, and that didn't seem to make a difference. Yeah, that's true. Uh, you know, I, I yeah, I'm not I'm not in a rush to have sex. I'm open to it. I feel like if I I don't know, like there there could be I could meet someone and be comfortable, but I, I I'm not sure how confident I am in that happening any, anytime soon. I don't have an agenda. I don't have an agenda for sex. I don't know what that achieves for me. I remember the time, like brief period in my life when I had a strong agenda for sex. And what it did achieve for me, which was some feeling of power, along with that was guilt. Along with that was feelings of, so like imposter syndrome. I don't really deal with that in other aspects of of things that I do. But yeah, for sure, sexually, I totally, I felt that big time. Like I was tricking them. Into thinking what or believing what? That you were... Into believing I was sexy? Like maybe just at that basis, not like I was tricking them into believing that I was going to be their boyfriend because I wasn't, but maybe just tricking them into thinking I was some kind of ladies man or something because I found that was kind of working. Like, oh, like I'm still kind of a nice guy, (laughs) you know, but maybe a little less so or just I was, yeah, I was being a little aggressive. I was like, I was going after something that I wasn't even totally sure I wanted and I was going after it hard because I felt like that was what I had to do. Like it was, oh, this is what I'm supposed to do as a man, so I better finally show up and go after it. I'm not afraid of women. I don't feel angsty around women inherently. Are you afraid of vaginas? Yeah, a little bit. (laughs) Can you talk about that? I mean, I'm I'm afraid of buttholes more. (laughs) But, But yeah, well, I, you know, the vagina is very complicated, a little bit mysterious, it's intimidating. It's intimidating. The penis is very simple. It's just like a thing. What you see is what you get. Yeah. Yeah, but the internal genitalia is a whole different story. Maybe I'm I'm scared of its like fragility. You know, I feel like it's delicate. <laughs> and I know that I have an urge to pound it, you know, to like be aggressive, to make my soft organ hard so that I can use it as a tool to like somehow kind of like inflict damage on this delicate organ. (laughs) And like, I know I have that urge. I can't justify it, especially since I'm not trying to have children. 
you have urges to pound. <laughs> yeah. But that would be what we call ego dystonic for you. In other words, you're ashamed of those urges? Partially ashamed, partially just embarrassed. Multiple times you said, I'm a monkey. I'm a yeah. fucking monkey. Yeah. So own it. If you're a monkey, be a monkey. That's true. Right? I mean, you've said that to me a couple of times in context of people expecting you to know things and figure things out and accomplish certain things. So how do you explain the discrepancy there? I guess it's because of the responsibility. So I don't know what responsibility a monkey has after sex. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I know I have a responsibility after sex. What is it? What's the responsibility? Well, I know that if I get somebody pregnant, then... That's a lifetime of responsibility. Okay, so is that a, one of the deterrents, one of the barriers for you is a fear of pregnancy? There's some of that. I know that if I make somebody feel something and that hurts them, so not just not just like I'm hurting her with my like penis, which is there's also that fear of just mm-hmm. like simple mm-hmm. like abuse that my sexual aggression leads to abuse in some way or pain mm-hmm. that's like not welcome in some way mm-hmm. and uh, also emotional yeah and yeah and you that, don't want to hurt anyone's feelings you don't I, want to misrepresent your intentions yeah so like a lot of guys will say oh she's crazy she's crazy you know <laughs> about like okay so however i acted with some woman she's crazy <laughs> that doesn't make me feel less responsible to just dismiss that someone's crazy It doesn't make me feel less responsible for, oh, if she's crazy and I had sex with her and then that's has some kind of emotional breakdown that's related to that. I see guys all the time just be like, well, whatever, she's crazy, you know, like it's her fault for like being crazy. I can't put myself there because I think in the sense that women are crazy with regards to men, it's men's fault. I believe that. Very strongly. So I, I can't, even if it's other men's fault, I can't be like, oh, well, I don't know what guy fucked you up, but it's not my problem, you know? Mm-hmm. I guess there's part of me that's projecting that kind of frailty onto all of women, and that's probably kind of misogynistic. In a backdoor way. Yeah. It's quite misogynistic. Yeah. That like, oh, I better keep my dick away from her because, you know, when she touches that, she's <laughs> ruined for life. Or she'll expect a ring yeah or a baby yeah or something else that i can't give her yeah or don't want to give her or wouldn't be good at if i did so in the brief moment where i got a little bit aggressive with like dating and kind of trying to sleep with women was some kind of realization of like oh you know what they can hurt me too (laughs) and as long as i'm not using any asymmetrical power power that I have as a man that they don't have as a woman, like physical power, that I don't have any edge. You did tell me, though, once that you use your wiles, and I remember that word, your brain, your smarts, your charm, your humor and wit to trick women into having sex. And that's why you prefer fiercely intelligent women because they're harder to manipulate. Yes. Is there an intrinsic belief that if a woman has sex with someone, she's being manipulated. No, no, because I think a lot of times 
women have sex with men and their men being manipulated. I'm giving the manipulation factor to whoever's smarter. Whoever's smarter. If, if somebody is significantly smarter. Or not just smarter, more tricky. I don't know. I, it's not just like, I feel like some people are gifted at manipulating other people. And I, I, I don't think I'm like a master manipulator, but I'm decent. I think I... <laughs> <laughs> I've mostly used it to just get away with not doing anything mm -hmm. rather than to like do bad things. But regardless, I've, I've built up those skills and I know that I can, if I let myself, I can fool somebody. You don't have a traditional career, nine mm -hmm. to five job. Yeah. You're kind of master of your own domain. Yeah. Is that the same force driving you like don't hire me don't you don't want me working for your company because I'm going to ultimately yeah fail you yeah I guess I have I do have that feeling even about past jobs that I had where I kind of felt on the way out like I was like getting away with something you have a very overactive super ego <laughs> <laughs> for those of you who don't know what a super ego is it's Freud spoke of the id the ego and the super ego and the superego is considered like the parent, the one that follows the rules and is most responsible and kind of reigns in the id. And it just seems like from a very young age, you were overly sensitive to and aware of tricking people, duping people, doing the right thing, feeling burdened by not being able to cut the mustard. Yeah, I grew up in a very moralistic home, for sure. What do you mean by that? In different ways from both sides, my mom and my dad. Um, but both very concerned with propriety, with doing the right thing. Mm -hmm. Values-driven. Yeah, values-driven. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, the values being a lot of empathy mm -hmm. in my family. Don't If you were going to be mean, be mean up. We're mm -hmm. definitely like... Don't pick on the little guy. Yeah, don't pick on the little guy. And I'm a literal little guy. So You're a literal little a literal guy. Little Say guy. that 10 times fast. I'm a literal <laughs> little guy. So for sure, that yeah, I have a, a yearning to protect people who I feel like have less power than me. Mm -hmm. And I for sure have kind of projected that onto all women to some degree. Mm -hmm. As a white male, you have privilege yeah. that you feel is unearned. Yeah, for sure. And you're sensitive to using your privilege to make the world a better place. Or at least not make the world a worse place. Yeah. yeah. You know? So your fear that if you have sex with someone, that they're going to think that you are a successful masculine specimen is more burdensome to you than your libido? Do you suppress your sexual energy? Have you just trained it not to manifest? Do you struggle with energy, libido in your body that has nowhere to go? Like, how did you sleep next to your beautiful girlfriend? And I've met her and she's beautiful, folks. How did you sleep next to her and smell her and see her and touch her and, and not want to be sexual with her? How did you do that for three or four or five years? Yeah, but it's not like that. I do. I like the way she smells, and I do. I'm So now in our kind of non-togetherness, we still, you know, spend some time together, and I'm 
still attracted to her and I still smell her and I do get turned on. Do you get an erection? Yeah, sometimes. And sometimes I hide it from her because I am afraid of... (laughs) Of what? Of it being something... Of it being a battering ram? Yeah, yeah. There's some feeling of like abuse. Let me just make sure I got this right. You've been aroused, turned on with an erection with a partner who clearly is receptive to sexual contact and in love with you and you hide it. You've hidden it. Yeah. Is that masochistic? I don't think so. I think that I'm doing it out of a sense of protection. Uh, I'm not sure if I'm protecting her or you. I'm not sure. Or both. Both. But what if there's no need for protection? What if it's safe? Is that something you can even consider or wrap your head around that, that you don't need protection and she doesn't need protection? Or is that just really foreign to you? I felt that way in the beginning of our relationship. I felt like unprotected, like sexually unprotected. Does that mean free and expressive? Yeah. Because you did have sex in the beginning of the relationship. Yeah, we had a lot of sex in the beginning. And I I felt like, yeah, well, I felt free and expressive. And and we were both just being, I don't know, I felt like we were creative lovers. And I, I also was probably, in retrospect and upon talking to her, projecting a lot of like, I don't know. I just, I see like, there's a constantly in, in TV and movies, you know, the guy who's like, that was great. Right. And she's like, yeah, (laughs) you know, I think there was some of that going on. (laughs) One thing that I find just fascinating, Matthew, is that since you and your girlfriend stopped living together and stopped being an exclusive couple, you had sex with her. You had coitus, you had intercourse with her. How do you explain that, man? just kind of happened. <laughs> well, I have a different well, theory. Well, so, 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 yeah, I mean, you were asking, you know, if I get turned on when I'm with her, you know, she sleeps over sometimes, you know. I think that you could have sex with her because there were no expectations that it was clear that you weren't a couple and that you weren't boyfriend and girlfriend. And so you allowed your sexuality to manifest and be expressed but when you were with her and her partner, you didn't allow that to happen. It's really interesting. I felt probably for a long time, probably for longer than I realized, like I was a fraud as a partner, for sure. And a fraud as a lover, as part of that. Because you stopped being her lover. Yeah. Not because you weren't a good lover, but because you refused to be a lover. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I think that going back to the expectations of being a man that like, oh, well, in a relationship, a woman might be like, I don't feel like it tonight or whatever. But the guy is just always ready to go, right? Always. That's Uh, the stereotypical. Right. Yeah. And And so you weren't ready to go. I was not always ready to go. Like never ready to go. (laughs) I was never ready to go. (laughs) Well, what happened? I would say a transition from our active sexual relationship to inactive sexual relationship wasn't overnight. And there was... It never is, by the way. Right, yeah. And amidst that, there was some sex that we didn't feel good about. And I think that that was... Shameful? For you, I remember you saying that you felt shame about how you had... You perceived that you had objectified her, or she felt objectified by you in some way. And then that was 
getting way too close to dipping your toe in the pool of inherently aggressive predatory behavior. Yeah. And yeah, there was a lot of guilt around having watched porn, which I did to some degree from the time. Well, I guess I didn't watch porn when I was really young. Didn't have it yet. But yeah, some kind of visual, whether it's magazines or porn, and then kind of developing my idea of sexuality through porn. And I think some of the aggressiveness of that being channeled into my approach to sex, just like inherently, because that's what I was, that's what I was modeling, probably. Trying to reproduce some kind of performance of masculinity that I had seen in porn. Trying to reproduce that and kind of feeling good about it, kind of feeling like I'm doing it. Like, oh my God, yeah, I'm like a porn dude, you know? (laughs) Feeling that, like kind of power and... Then her being like, I don't really like that, <laughs> was tough. <laughs> you know, it was like, oh, what? Uh, oh, okay. So, so I thought I was maybe succeeding by doing this performance of dominance or something. And it was making her feel weaker. I think I imagined it as something it's like liberating her, you know, my, I'm going to be this like whatever romance novel lover of some kind and doing that performance. And that by doing that, I was, I was being a great lover and I wasn't because I was just, I was performing. I wasn't involved in her experience. So given the work that we've done and we've done some good work, some deep work, do you feel remotely more comfortable, more peaceful about your sexuality? Do you feel like you have made friends with your masculinity in any way? It's getting there. I do. Also, I, I feel empowered in being my own kind of masculine. And and not apologizing for it. And not apologizing for it. Okay. Yeah. And, and accepting that when I talk to my ex-girlfriend about it, she has good things to say about my masculinity. She tells me that she thinks I'm a good guy. So I, I feel like there's, there's some kind of validation there too. I just want to state for the record that the reason you broke up in part was because you were in a sexless relationship and she wanted to have sex and had sort of reached her threshold around living that way. But also because she had expectations of you outside of sex yeah. that made you angry. Yeah. And that, that I think was the final straw, but I think it's all connected. The sexual expectations and the expectations that you get a job or propose or, you know, live a certain lifestyle. I, I just think that ultimately it was your, fundamental, profound insecurity around success that made it unbearable for you to look her in the eye. I wanted validation from her and she wasn't willing to give me validation that she didn't 
feel I deserved or that I was putting in the work to get. And that's very fair. I just wanted her the validation anyway. You wanted her to have no expectations of you. Yeah, and tell me that that was great. That Yeah, I wanted her to approve of the way I live my life, and and she couldn't, and still doesn't. Well, my hope for you, Matthew, is that you can make friends with your sexuality, your masculinity, and that you can find someone that you are happy to receive some expectation from. (laughs) We've got more work to do, huh? Yeah, I don't know if I want that. Well, we'll see. We'll see. I have a lot of expectations for myself. You have expectations for yourself, but no one's allowed to have expectations toward you? I I think that there's something about my feeling of not living up to my expectations for myself Mm -hmm. that makes it extra hard to live up to somebody else's expectations of me. Yeah. And I will say that you were a great boyfriend and that your ex would say that, that when she needed you, you were there for her in a non-sexual context and very giving and very loving in a lot of ways, as long as you were in charge of when to (laughs) offer that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Matthew, thank you so much for chatting with me today on Sex Savvy. I hope that your story was compelling to others and maybe inspired some men to think about their experience of masculinity. And I will see you next week on Tuesday at our regular time. Great. I hope you found my interview with Matthew compelling. If you could relate on a personal level to any of his struggles, whether it be around masculinity or sexless relationships or motivations to be sexual or barriers that keep you from expressing your sexuality, please share them with me. I'd love to hear your stories and answer your questions on a future episode of Sex Savvy. Also, if you find this podcast valuable, please like share, comment, and that will help other people gain access to this podcast. If you would like to share your story, you can email me at Kimberly at sexsavvypodcast.com or you can leave a message on my toll-free phone line 844-SEX-SAVVY. You've been listening to Sex Savvy. If you find value in this podcast, please like, follow, share, comment, or review on your favorite podcast app. Your participation helps keep sex savvy free and available to all who are interested. Kimberly and the entire sex savvy team appreciate your loyalty and support.